0: Welcome to another episode of Southern Queries. I don't know if you've been paying attention to the news, but it does seem like there's a lot of attention happening at the state level related to LGBTQ kids. And the more I think about what's going on, it just made me think, this all sounds very familiar. And whenever I think that something sounds familiar or something feels very historical, I call up my friend Lee from the great podcast, History is Gay. We are proud to present to you this crossover episode where on here on Southern Queries, we're looking at the contemporary context of where these anti-LGBTQ and trans attacking bills come from and legislation are coming from. And then on History is Gay... Lee and I will be going into the history of these attacks, focusing on Anita Bryant. We do encourage you to listen to both episodes. There is a link to History is Gay in our show notes, and we thank you all very much. Let's get to the conversation. So on today's show, we have a very special guest for you all. We have Lee Pfeffer from History Is Gay, one of the greatest uh, queer history podcasts, and just one of the greatest queer podcasts around. Lee, welcome to the show.
1: Oh, thank you. That's that's so kind of you. <laughs> I have a good time with it. Um, it definitely, you know, is <laughs> is a lot of work, and I enjoy doing it. Um... <laughs> But thank you, that's very high praise. (laughs) how
0: did you
2: come about meeting Aubrey? And I'd love to hear more about how you started your
0: show.
1: Yeah, uh, so Aubrey and I actually met through the uh, now defunct... Well, I guess the Facebook group isn't so defunct, but the podcast is. Um, It was for the Facebook group for the uh, podcast Nancy. It was the Friends of Nancy group. And uh, Aubrey was actually writing... Um, a series of articles or posts about a bunch of queer people of color for uh, LGBTQ History Pride Month, LGBTQ History Month. And I was like, these are great. I really like what she's writing. I really want to talk to her about some folks. And I'm looking for, you know, guest, ho- guest hosts to come on my show since I, uh, you know, lost my... Um, my primary co host a couple of years ago, uh so I've been kind of doing it solo and uh we started chatting and just kind of hit it off and became friends and now you've done what? F- four ep- four episodes together, not including the one we've we're doing four. right now. Yeah Something we've like done that. four. Yeah. It's you're been probably fine. the the most uh, uh... most consistent, most frequently cycled in guest host (laughs) that the show has had. Um, Because I just, I really like doing episodes with you and you're (laughs) super knowledgeable and fun to talk to. And um, this girl can research the hell out of things. So...
0: No, it just reminds me of graduate school. No, but it's, it's funny though, because you and I met, like you said, through Nancy. India, you and I met through Nancy. And that podcast, I just, I wish more, not more people, but I wish it was still around. I know Tobin and Kathy are both off doing great things, but I do wish it was around. I wish it got more support from the bigger corporate entities and all that because it was such a good show.
1: For those who don't know... What is your podcast about? Uh, So my podcast is called History is Gay, and the tagline is because history has never been as straight as you think, which is true. Queer people have existed everywhere all throughout the world and throughout time since human beings have been a thing. Um, So the show goes through uh, all of that. Um, You know, we don't really have like a specific niche in queer history or a time period or anything that we're focusing on. We pick individuals and cultural groups and uh events that have happened that have been significant to uh understanding of you know queer history queer culture and we do it all for you know with kind of like a a fandomy lens fandomy bent of like you know we're gonna talk about some folks you know much in the same way that we would about some of our favorite characters um because i think that that just makes people really ex- it makes this these stories really accessible to people who may not necessarily have interacted with stories such as these because they had to like find them in a really you know academic article laden with a whole bunch of uh language that you would need you know a masters in history to understand sometimes um so you know we kind of take it as like We're translating um, all of this information.
2: So on that note, I'd love to hear, um, or can you explain what our crossover is? What is the episode that people can listen to on History is Gay? And then what are we going to be talking about here in Southern Queer? Yeah, so
1: uh, Aubrey and I got together and, and talked about wanting to do some crossover episodes. And with... Everything that is going on right now in terms of anti-LGBTQ legislation uh, just skyrocketing in this country, in the United States, um, we really wanted to go back into some of the history of that. Um, As depressing as that topic is, it's very topical. Um, So uh, on the episode of History is Gay um, that uh, came out slightly before this, uh, we talked about the uh, 1970s conservative religious backlash to state and local attempts to bring about some forms of gay rights. Uh, laws. Um, we specifically go into the history of Anita Bryant and the Save Our Children campaign in 1977, which was an effort in Dade County, Florida, um, to uh, overturn a local gay rights ordinance that kind of expand like exploded all over the country, created this huge uh, news whirlwind around Queer rights and um the rise of kind of like right-wing conservative christian specifically backlash to queer rights and this like thing that would evolve in the 80s into like family values movement um and you know on the flip side of that too it doesn't just you know end up in in southern states but it is something that directly effect, uh, directly impacted things enough that there was also an attempt a year later in California on the state level to ban LGBTQ people from being teachers. Um, it's called the Briggs Initiative or Proposition 6. And this was, and that was actually the first one to be overturned um, or was the first one to be actually struck down.
0: Yeah, I I think I texted you a bunch of ideas and I said, hey, I want to come on your show again. Here's like a bunch of ideas. And one of them was like, hey, we should talk about Anita Bryant. And they said, what's going on in Florida just seems so much like Anita Bryant and the 1970s. It's like deja vu, even though it feels like we've been through all this before, even though literally none of us were alive for it, three of us, but it just feels like that 1970s even though we weren't there, it just feels and so, so similar. We
1: wanted, you know, to kind of give so give the context of that and, you know, talk about all of that and then here, uh, basically talk about how it's we're we're right back in it correct. So I
2: think in um, to, to give a little bit more guidance to our listeners, here on Southern Queers, we'll be exploring a more contemporary tie-in, and we're looking at how the attacks on trans youth specifically and queer um, kids in Texas, Florida, and numerous other states um, and throughout the U.S. it's almost identical or eerily similar to Anita Bryant and religious conservatives' arguments from 50 years ago. So to really get a full understanding we do encourage everyone to listen to both episodes let's talk about current events um what's happening I feel like there's a couple different things on our plate and they are a little bit tied and uh, intertwined with each other but do we want to start with the Florida's don't say gay bill
0: yeah and I feel like this has gotten a lot of attention already but I think just from a uniquely southern perspective, Florida and Texas tend to be the most controversial states in the South, and that's where we're getting a lot of this backlash with them being so significant from a political perspective. Uh, If you're listening to this in the future, this is 2022. It's right during the primary season where there's all these state and local elections going on, and one way the Republicans, and we should say there are some moderate Democrats in there, and we may talk about them a bit. But one way the Republicans are really trying to get their base out to vote is that instead of solving problems and coming up with what are called solutions to real issues, they're making up fake issues like the fact that there are LGBTQ books in libraries or that trans kids are existing and being supported. And so their solution is to bring up an issue and make get people riled up about it, even though it has not been an issue ever. And in Florida, they just passed their HB fifteen seventy seven, the what we call the "Don't Say Gay" bill, but what they're really called the Parents' Rights and Education bill, to to argue that we can't really talk about all these controversial issues and subjects that make people uncomfortable. And Florida and Georgia's got a similar bill, and Tennessee's got a, a similar bill. Uh, Texas, here in Texas, the world's kind of on fire as well because our governor is trying to use power that he doesn't have in the Constitution to have our Child Protective Service Agency go against and go after parents of trans kids just because those parents are supporting their trans kids because they're being affirming and giving them proper medical care, which Let's be honest, for kids that are transitioning, it's primarily a social transition, not like surgeries. And they're trying to call that child abuse.
1: well and and one of the things that I
2: thought was was really important to talk about and recognize that, yes, there are some puberty blockers or hormonal um uh support that you could uh offer to trans kids, but they could be stopped at any moment in time, and they don't even happen until later they're also like a stupid amount of uh Texts, as well as publications and research around how we could actually avoid a lot of suicide prevention by giving these opportunities to these tweens or young kids I mean, I don't know, Lee, what do you think
1: yeah, I mean, I think the the thing to really kind of hone in on here is you know. Opponents to specifically, like, the Florida bill um, are sp- are calling it Don't Say Gay because the idea is that they're trying to legislate out um, being able to teach LGBTQ history, being able to discuss uh, LGBTQ families um, and, you know, cultural aspects and just kind of any mentioning of the fact that queer people exist. And so it's the idea of, like, don't say, you know, don't, don't say any of these things. Um, but the fact that it's actually called the Par- the parental rights in education act is I think the thing that made me and Aubrey go like, <laughs> um, yeah, it's like, wait, hold on. That
0: sounds familiar. That sounds familiar. Parents rights is a big dog whistle.
1: Yeah, it is. Parental rights is, is the dog whistle here. It is almost the same kind of language. Um, because in the 70s, you had these, these uh, movements coming out specifically saying, you know, trying to repeal the human rights ordinance was Save Our Children Incorporated. Um, uh, and actually, it was, a- it was actually called Save Our Children, parentheses, from homosexuality.
2: Yeah, I mean, even when I look at the House bill in Tennessee that would ban textbooks and instructional materials that promote slash normalize, support, or address lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender uh, lifestyles, which I can't stand that word, um, in K-12 through 12, uh, schools. And then the other one in Kansas seeks out to amend their state's obscenity law, which is using classroom materials depicting homosexuality as a Class B misdemeanor, like, it, the, the the wave of aftermath uh, from Florida is really, like, yep. oh.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, and that's the way that it goes, is, you know, it, one crusade happens and it explodes everywhere else. And that's what we saw in 1977. These things have a tendency to snowball. And once you create one precedent, that opens the doors for everything else. And um you know it just it just feels like it, you know it just feels like we're right back in it it feels like we've made so much progress and so much progress and we will continue to be you know there will be continue to be attempts to criminalize us using the exact same language and just trying to put a different spin on it um, and i mean you know now the the most uh popular scapegoat scapegoat is not just you know not not the homosexual but trans people um because the you know the the larger kind of cultural context has been oh well you know i i i know about gay people because i watch modern family but you know we're still fighting like a larger cultural battle over just you know getting people to understand that the binary is a you know, complete fabrication, and that, you know, that fucking trans people exist, and, like, just let us, just please let us use the bathroom.
0: Yeah, because the 1% of us, (laughs) the 1% of us that exist are so horrible, right? How can, how can we being, like, 1% of the country be so threatening when there's so few of us (laughs) that are out and out? Like, how are we so scary?
1: What I find really interesting is the parallels between um, that, you know, that that straw man argument of, um, you know, oh, well, bathroom bills exist because of the danger of men pretending that they're women and going into a bathroom to assault women and children. And this is the exact same kind of language this is the exact same kind of language as you know john briggs was using during prop prop six saying oh you know we the the intent of this bill is to prevent teachers you know from having the opportunity to molest a child or whatever and the bat you know and the response from gay organizations at the time was well but look statistically like a there's no evidence that homosexuality is, you know, in, in, in children is, is gained from an adult. And B, the vast majority of statistics prove that, you know, sexual abuse of children happens from heterosexual, quote-unquote, normal men.
0: People they know. More than likely, people that they know already.
1: Exactly. And so that's the same, you know, that's the same thing. It's like, okay, but like... Show me, show me statistics. Whenever any trans person has assaulted somebody in a bathroom,
0: but you don't have, yeah, but you don't have to have statistics because parents' rights is based on emotion, and you know parents want to have control. And I, I, you know, I've said this before. You both know me. My wife and I, we homeschool our daughter because we are so obsessed about having control. Parents want to not control it. Well, yeah, some of them want to control their kids. Um, But we want to control the environment around our kids to keep our kids as, quote unquote, safe as possible. And so they're basing this on creating a fear that's not there because they know how insane parents are in the 20th and 21st century. Everything to protect our little precious angels when there's not even really a threat there. But it's hard to be the politician coming out against parents protecting their kids. It does, it, and it does, it, because then you're saying, well, what about the parents of trans kids? How do they protect their children? Well, they're not as important as straight cis parents protecting straight cis kids. One parent is seen as better than the other in the eyes of the law.
1: Right but it, but it privileges some kids and some parents over others um yeah it's just it's just
2: messy, and it I guess what make concerns me as well not only for the youth but it also concerns um how it will bleed into other things i mean, I'm also seeing. the anti-abortion acts that we're going to hit the kids the next thing you know we're going to hit lgbtq marriages like i can already see the writing on the wall um and that's just concerning because it's also exhausting feeling because i'm like i thought we were past this why are we still having this conversation I also, I'm like, can we just take a moment on the idea of just not talking about it? Like, didn't we also have a bill called Don't Ask, Don't Tell? Like, back in, like, the 90s up until 2011, I feel like? Yeah, I I guess that's why I'm a little bit like, why are we having to repeat this same rhetoric but almost, like, Okay, we're not gonna do it with the gays and military. Now we're gonna do it with the gays at school, like
1: because it's a moving target, and you know the people who hate us, the people who think that you know we are not entitled to full the full range of human and civil rights, are going to continue. It's like a, it's it's like a um, uh, a, what's the, the mole It's like whackamole. It's they will continue to come up with different ways different scapegoats it's the same thing you know it's 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 and it's not just lgbtq people i mean we're seeing the exact same organs being used to quote-unquote protect white children from feeling bad about racism through critical race theory just by being like right just by being like well i mean these things happened like yeah, there are it seems like we're really going on a a um a really scary like um what's the exponential uh rise in these uh like just before we started recording we were looking at a chart that showed um you know just the the kind of skyrocketing of all these anti LGBTQ state bills since 2018 uh it was like you know less than like 50 in 2018 and 2022 is looking to be like the most like like the most on record uh this this NBC news article that we were looking at says nearly 240 anti-LGBTQ bills have been filed in 2022 so far and when we're recording this we are at the end of march And that's insane.
2: It's insane, but it's also a really good reflection of how polarized America has been becoming, you know, in the recent years. But it's also really startling being in the state of Texas. And even uh, we were talking about this earlier as well um, during Texas primaries, because we just had our primaries just recently, uh, the amount of, (laughs) I I guess, the people who are on the ballot, um, really it arrived amid an urgent period of anti-LGBTQ policy attacks, which really just pushes that same old rhetoric about the government to push religious ideology. um, And it's just exhausting.
1: <laughs> I mean, I think the difference is that, you know, public perception has changed uh, as a whole, right? Like we have this increase in all of these... Bills being proposed, but you know, that's also coming along with you know, increased support and acceptance, and uh, you know, qu- kind of more widespread cultural understanding. And so, it really does just kind of belie the fact that these bills are just conservatives and lobby groups, politicians like trying to sneak in whatever they can. Um, but you know, we can't take for granted. The, you know, the fact that people will be outraged by these because, you know, that's how things like Prop Eight happen, which is you know what happened in in California in twenty in two thousand eight, is you know they used intentionally misleading language and did it by a very slim margin, and, you know, any, any win that we get is open for being picked apart, it feels like, you know?
0: Yeah, and this is, I mean, and this is 100% timed, like, this is a coordinated attack. You know, these are, these are state-level policies, one, because Republicans in the Senate have keep blocking the Equality Act and Congress at the federal level, but the federal government's doing at least executive orders and the Supreme Court is having rulings that are pro-LGBTQ, So the coordinated attack is to go to the states, even though the polls show that most Americans, over half of Americans, support trans rights and support uh, gay rights. And it's not like it was in the 70s where most Americans were against gay rights (laughs) and most Americans thought that we were, quote unquote, abnormal. Now Americans are like, hey, how about everybody leaves each other alone? And it feels like it's a religious pushback because they're on the defensive, because their numbers are shrinking and that evangelical core is not getting bigger in this country. So I feel like they're trying to do everything they can while they're still in power. And that's just infuriating. They're not even listening to their own base in a lot of these things. But I mean, that's- Well, they're they're, they're, they're listening to the evangelical base, but the non-evangelical Republicans, the business (laughs) Republicans are like, hey, you're costing us money here.
1: (laughs) Right, But but the exact same thing happened in these, 19, you know, late nineteen seventies bills, is they came about specific, you know, not just out of nowhere. They specifically came out of post Stonewall organizing, where you started to have a lot of uh, LGBTQ organizations and groups, and the gay press expanding and really kind of coalescing into like gay people, you know, and I'm using gay as a shorthand. Um, we're starting to see themselves as like a national community. You know, we we are a group of people that have similar political and social interests and needs and being able to organize on that level. And that is what created and gave the opportunity for a bunch of different, I think it was, I think we said in the episode, there were nearly 40 um, local uh, ordinances um, in in different states that had been um, enacted, uh, expanding non-discrimination laws to sexual orientation or at the time, you know, sexual preference um, in like housing, public accommodations, and um, jobs. And so these efforts that we saw in the late 1970s were a fear, were a backlash out of fear of, oh god, you know, this is all happening. We, you know, it's not like these bills just popped out of nowhere and was like, okay, we want to, you know, ban these things. There had to be the progress for them to then say, no, we want to push this back. Um, so it just feels like, you know, it's the two steps forward, one step back, uh, or one step forward, two steps back sometimes, you know, when you get things like the Dade County that, um, you know, ended up getting overturned, um, you know, by a huge margin. Um, and uh, in you know, Wichita, in St. Paul, in Oregon, that rode this wave and didn't really change until California. And the Briggs initiative in early, you know, we said this in the episode, in early polls, it was thought to, like, win by a landslide. And it was really only the aggressive campaigning of Harvey Milk and Sally Gearhart and a bunch of LGBTQ activists in San Francisco and throughout California that, you know, really did uh, some, some significant shifts to the way that LGBTQ rights organizing was happening to kind of turn that tide. And allowed that uh, initiative to be, uh, to be uh, uh, beaten by, I think it was like a margin of just over a million votes.
2: Yeah. Yeah, you know, Leah, I feel like you bring up something really important for us to point out. I mean, uh, some of the research that I had put in uh, prior to this conversation is that in 22, we had at least 1006 openly LGBTQ people run or are running for office in 2020. And it's been the most in history. That's a 41% jump since the last midterm election in 2018. So when you have 716 open, openly LGBTQ candidates run, they will appear on the general election ballot in November up from 432 in 2018 to a 33% increase. So I also think that some of the backlash that we're seeing right now of all of these different bills might also be because in unlike in the 70s, we have a way I'd like to say, quote, safer, more open, louder, a bigger platform, aka the internet, um, to really showcase how many LGBTQ candidates are running. And a lot of them, which I thought was really powerful, 31% of those candidates identify as people of color so we're not only significantly seeing a larger lgbtq candidate population but we're also seeing a significantly more racial diverse than the general candidate population than ever before so i think some of the bills that are being proposed especially in what we like to call the bible belt of the south is a reaction to some of what they're seeing coming up in these elections uh, I mean, if I was a white conservative uh, male uh, who was really
1: into... Well, wow, imagine that, right? What would life be like? Yeah, imagine that.
2: <laughs> That's
1: a whole nother episode, Lee. Oh, boy. Man, I'd really love to move through the world with the confidence of a mediocre cis straight white man. It'd be great. Ooh. No. Ooh. 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 Oh. But Hello, I'm just saying. That I think
2: maybe the increase of candidates on the ballot might also be the reaction that we're seeing from the more conservative Republican um, candidates. Uh, I did think it was interesting that Alabama was the only state where there was zero known openly LGBTQ candidates that ran in 2020, while in California, Texas, and Florida were the largest amount of number in LGBTQ candidates running. So I do think it's very interesting when you start digging into the data, that's where these biggest, most controversial bills are being popped up are in states like Texas and Florida, where they had the most amount of candidates running that were out and open. So um, if you think about it from an organizational structure kind of way,
0: yeah, I mean, maybe that's they're scared. I mean, I'll say, and I've, I've, I've always felt Republicans... The problem with Republicans is that they're really good at strategy, and that's always been a big problem for, for, for liberals is that conservatives strategize for two, four, ten elections down the road, and that's so hard to combat, you know? and that's not a compliment to them, but they really get it's, a strategy.: It's their biggest defense.
2: Yeah, yeah it is their biggest defense. Um... Yeah, so I just wanted to point – I don't know if if maybe our listeners might get a little bit of hope when listening to some of those uh, data uh, pulling out on um, 2020 and what – People are predicting that we might see in these upcoming (laughs) elections in November. Um, And even when I start looking at the candidates that were running in Texas, because that's where we're located at, I was really surprised on how many people of color, LGBTQ, or openly LGBTQ candidates were running um, for very important seats, Um, because I think both parties are feeling very nervous of what's to come since we had such a volatile um, regime in our past presidency.
0: I guess I'll just put my confession out there. I have not been following the 2022 elections as close as the previous years. I'm going to confess that. I just, I'll be honest, Why? I'm still burnt out from 2020. <laughs> and 2021, 2021 was exhausting. I'm still burnt out from... 2016 i will admit i'm not nearly as dialed in to this election cycle as i have in previous years and that worries me a little bit it's exhausting
1: uh yeah it's exhausting when you know you see just legislation after legislation after legislation come up and you're like oh cool another way that they're trying to now i have to go on the offensive (sighs) again right Well, and that's, I mean, that was the exact same shit that was going on in the 70s, too. All of this same bullshit (laughs) was happening concurrently with the Equal Rights Amendment being drafted and being up for voting. And these specific targeted efforts for, you know, Dade County were instrumental in striking down... (laughs) The Equal Rights Amendment in Florida. So it's all tied in together. So for our
2: audience who might not be familiar with the Equality Act in the U.S., I do want to just give a little brief description. The Equality Act is a bill in the U.S. Congress that if passed would amend the Civil Rights Act of 1964 to prohibit discrimination on the basis of sex, sexual orientation, and gender identity in employment, housing, public accommodations, education, federally funded programs,
0: credit, and jury service. Okay, uh, last things we want to talk about. Uh, you know, and I find this a little bit interesting, uh, the student reaction to all of this is something that I just absolutely love. Kids in middle schools and high schools are walking out, they're protesting, and I think The people that are pushing these anti-LGBTQ legislation seriously underestimate everything that's on the internet and the fact that their kids navigate it so much better than they adults do. You can take it out the libraries, they're still going to get it on everywhere else. I mean, it's like, so I don't know what they're trying to accomplish here except rile up a base because the students themselves are not taking this line down. And that's really a good thing to see. That's really heartwarming. This idea that this current generation of kids, um, and I'm 41, so I get to call them kids because to me, everyone's a kid now. I'm almost 41. Um, Just the idea that the the kids today are just so much more in touch with what are called emotions and feelings, and they're a lot more accepting, And I just think that's an important part that we need to also acknowledge that the kids are doing all right.
1: Right. It's the queerest generation, at least openly. Openly. Um, Yeah. Uh, You know, let's just hope that they get listened to. Um, And I think, you know, we're in a different position in that we have a large um, kind of cadre of, you know, national legal organizations fighting this fight um you know you have the national center for lesbian rights you have um you know uh you have the aclu you have all of these different lambda organizations Liga, that are now, uh, yeah all, lambda all legal these,
0: all quality texas uh, all these are there yeah so that's a good thing
1: yeah national and state levels who are you know keeping you know keeping eyes on all of this and are ready to mobilize um and i think that there's you know More opportunities for, um, you know, the money being there to really throw resources at trying to fight this... In ways that you didn't see in the 1970s, you know, I mean, you had, um, you know, by the late 1970s, you had like the National Gay Task Force, who was uh, allying with different uh, democratic parties and, you know, really starting to kind of move into mainstream politics. Um, But, you know, nothing to the extent that, you know, exists now, in terms of like, coordinated legal uh, response to... Um, And, and it's also not just like specifically queer organizations fighting for this, you know, it's, it's the, the, um, the atmosphere is, hey, this is a civil rights issue. Um.
2: Yeah, I think the other thing to really note is um, something you were touching on, Aubrey, about the generations um when I think of the kids I'm really thinking of like generation Z which I know people have um you know gripes on uh being called millennial versus generation um uh, you know, X and, and boxing people into these different generations. But I do think it's interesting. And I the only reason why I bring it up is because we see it in my work as an HR professional and the droves of people who are coming into the workforce. That also means this drove of people who are coming into the workforce are of voting age. Um, so I think it's very important that the cusp of adulthood um and who is facing this uncertain future and what we know so far of Gen Z is that, and it's basically anyone born after 1996, Um, the oldest uh, members of this generation will be turning 23 this year. That's roughly 24 million will have the opportunity to cast a ballot in November. And when you look at the data on how many of these kids of Generation Z identify as LGBTQ, It's huge. Um, So I also think that maybe the reaction of all of these bills coming in, if I was an older 50 or even 70-year-old man who's a Republican in the Senate, I'd be scared shitless. Those kids aren't going to vote for me. And they're certainly not going to be voting for any of those bills that I just put on the table
0: either. But isn't that part of it, though, is that if you don't teach it in schools... Then these kids aren't that familiar. When they become a voting age, they don't have the necessary information to vote to protect their rights. And I think like it's all coordinated. They're trying to keep them uninformed to keep them from voting right. to keep them from knowing so what's they're going trying on. Trying to
1: get all of this. And you know, people don't pay attention to local the and state issues as
0: much. So I think you're right in that these kids are. I'm gonna keep saying kids. They're kids. These young adults <laughs> are a threat. They're they're a threat. Yeah. These young adults I mean, are a threat. I, and they the the thing that. that I keep yeah. seeing
1: is you know i they're these people that are putting all this legislation, and they're hoping that if you don't talk about queer people in schools and you know that people won't know what to do about their own selves, but like I can guarantee you not hearing about queer history and queer people didn't make me any less queer like it's that doesn't that's not how it happens like it recruitment does not exist and it's the same argument it's the same argument it was you know it was anita bryant and and john briggs saying homosexuals cannot reproduce so they must recruit and they're going after the youth of america and that's the same thing that they're basically saying, is they're saying that if we talk about these things in schools, then the kids will get ideas and they'll learn about it and then they'll decide that they want to be gay. And it's like, that's 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 not how it works. You know, you know most gay people are made from two straight people. You want to know what the leading cause of gay people is? Straight people. From straight people? From <laughs> <laughs> straight people. <laughs> Statistically the leading cause Mm -hmm. of queer people (laughs) existing is is straight people. Because straight people will be having sex (laughs) and making queer babies. If you want a scapegoat. Totally. There you go.
0: So admittedly, uh, by the time we got to the end of this conversation, we had kind of diverged into talking about a lot of Things queer podcasting related, or um, Xena and we spent a lot of time. India and I spent a lot of time trying to convince Lee uh, to move down here to the south where things were much more affordable. And they weren't going for it, but we did give an open invitation to Lee. Anytime they want to come down here, we've got uh, drinks on us, and India's happy to show them around Atlanta, and I'm happy to show them around Dallas but we do appreciate Lee coming on the show. Here at the end, I wanna point out that you can actually do a lot to help the cause in terms of political activism. If you feel that these attempts and attacks on the kids in our community is unfair, if you think it's unjustified and you think it's a violation of human rights, in our show notes, we're including links to a few different organizations that you can donate to and you could put your money towards helping the legal fight and the political fight to defend our LGBTQ kids because ultimately it is up to us to defend them. Just as those in the community that came before us worked to defend our rights, it's up to us to help push the ball forward, if you will, and protect the rights of others. Uh, so we do hope you'll donate to some of those causes. You can catch up with us on all of our social media. We're on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And one day, India is going to get me on TikTok, even though I will continue to resist doing so. Southern Queries is written and produced by India Bastian and Aubrey Calvin. This episode did have special writing and research help from Lee Pfeffer. Our theme song has been mixed by Alice and Holly. And we're happy to welcome our new production associate, Elise, and we're happy to have her on board. This has been Aubrey Calvin and India, and we will see you next time on Southern Queries. Thanks, everyone.